result kind of reeks a little bit of, of American foreign policy over the last 20 years, whether it's arming quasi-allies, soft allies in the region, and then the negative consequences of that. You know, perhaps in the past, historically, it was providing RPGs to uh, an opposition group of a government that we didn't like, and then ultimately coming back to bite us. Here, it's, it's the cyber element. We've now we, speaking as U.S. as a country, but specifically the government, allow these licenses to go through, help develop this capability to a country that's helping in the, in the fight against terror, but perhaps doesn't have the same values or laws as the United States. And now this is this is the consequences, the side effects. Welcome to episode 249 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I should say that any resemblance to the views of our law firm's partners, clients, uh, and uh, friends is purely coincidental. Uh, today, I'll be interviewing Chris Bing and Joel Sheckman, reporters for Reuters, who recently broke major stories about how the United Arab Emirates is using U.S. persons or has used U.S. persons uh, coming out of the National Security Agency to do some of their uh, hacking and spying, including in some cases on Americans. Uh, so it's a fraught story and a lot of fun. So welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Okay, and joining me for the news roundup uh, are Phil Kinda, who's a partner of mine in the uh, Washington and New York offices of Steptoe and Johnson, Maury Shank, who advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, Nate Jones, who was the co-founder of Culper Partners and a veteran of the Justice Department, Dr. Megan Reese, uh, who's a National Security Fellow at the R Street Institute, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, host and chief provocateur for the day. Uh, so, Phil, I asked you to come down here because uh, there was a lot of coverage of the Yahoo derivative class action settlement for their breaches, um, uh, $29 million, uh, and some suggestion that maybe this was opening a brand new front in privacy litigation and that $29 million is not uh, uh, something to be seized at, and perhaps it would change the approach of directors and officers to um, issues that they hadn't spent as much time on in the past. And since I know you were involved, I mean, that makes it you a little cautious about what you can say. Uh, um, can you give us some sense of how, how we should treat this? Is it, you know, uh, a, a uh, straw in the wind or a black swan? Happy to talk about it. And again, I'm going to be a little bit careful given our role behind the scenes on a number of different sensitive matters for that good company. Um, and first of all, thanks again for having me back. Yeah. I would call this one a red herring. Uh, and here's why. <laughs> Yahoo doesn't exist anymore. And so it was acquired in parts by Verizon that combined it with its AOL business, now Oath. And then the Alibaba and certain related assets went to a new entity called Altaba. The liabilities flowed to Altaba. And so, because Verizon said we're not taking this, right? And so, I think what people should bear in mind when looking at the derivative settlement, when looking at the SEC settlement, was that the people negotiating the resolution were, in a sense, not the people whose conduct was being, and not the entity whose conduct was being assessed. And so, the incentives are different. What do they want more than anything else? Closure, 
cost containment. And so if you can settle quickly in the current quarter to tell your investor base, that's true. And you can settle within the insurance constraints. That's the incentive. And I, you know, in my judgment, and this is my opinion alone, I think they did it too quickly. In fact, I'd go on the record saying they did it shamelessly too quickly. So it, it, from, from their point of view, though, they just hold stock, right? They're not in this business. They're not going to be repeat offenders. They're not going to have anybody's private data. So if they can get out of this, um, they don't have to worry that they're setting a benchmark for future settlements. At least not as to them. Yeah. And so it's everybody else's problem, but no longer theirs. And so that creates a, a distinct, odd incentive for them to say, this is not us. This is not us trying to come to a resolution so we can continue to go forward unimpaired mm -hmm. or not unduly impaired in some way, either before the government or vis-a-vis -vis our shareholders. Instead, what do we want? We want to never hear about this again. We want out. <laughs> and best of all, if we can get a release and do this within the bounds of our insurance coverage or with some mm -hmm. nominal payment, we can have closure. What it does, unfortunately, is it leads those of us who otherwise subject these tea leaves to almost Talmudic study. What does it mean going forward? Not that much. Yeah. Now, will other plaintiff's lawyers come in and say, but Yahoo? Will the regulators occasionally say, but Yahoo? Perhaps. Now, on the regulatory front, I would predict a lot has happened since that settlement. The SEC itself has been the victim of a data breach, interestingly quieting which, a which lot just of their Which does claims. make you kind of humble. Indeed. And they and in Yahoo, they actually did catch the hackers. Right. Um, and so that will temper, I think, part of it. On the plaintiff side, I think the same racket will continue. Will it come up? Yes. But I think for those in the know, it can be brushed aside. Okay. So that is, makes perfect sense. Uh, I take this as with a grain of salt as a precedent. Uh, uh, but... Uh, uh, you're going to hear about it from the uh, the plaintiff's bar. And so the the key here is, what's the second settlement look like? Exactly. Okay. Let's keep watching. All right. Th uh, thanks, Bill. That's, My that's, pleasure. That's terrific. Uh, uh, Nate, I wanted to ask you, because uh, this is just a fun story uh, about the efforts to take down Citizen Lab for their stories on NSO, which is a... Uh, um, a vulnerabilities firm, I guess you'd say, uh, in Israel, uh, by running fake personas at Citizen Lab uh, uh, personnel to try to get them to say embarrassing things. Uh, uh, what's going on there? Uh, it's a good question. So, as you mentioned, Citizen Lab uh, is a cybersecurity watchdog organization affiliated with the University of Toronto. And they've done some some research and published some some findings uh, that has been critical of some pretty uh, significant targets, um, including the Chinese government and including, as you mentioned, NSO for their role in in exporting surveillance tools to, uh, among others, repressive governments to spy on their populations. You know, we've seen this for some time now where you have well-resourced clients uh, seeking out former intelligence agencies to dig up dirt, uh, gather information. It feels a little bit to me like it is, as you said, a little bit more focused on getting them or duping them into saying things that will undermine their credibility uh, in the public. Um, a lot of people are sort of linking this to Black Cube. Um, and I haven't seen any specific ties to, to back that up, 
Um, but it's it, just it the trade. The tradecraft looks a little. Uh, uh, it seems a little familiar if you've listened to the discussions of what happened to Harvey Weinstein's uh, the victims. Uh, uh, they had LinkedIn profiles. They had, you know, kind of acceptable but not very deep uh, websites that you could uh, go to to check them out. Um, but a pretty shallow cover. Yeah, and. You know, and, you know, we saw something similar in the case of the former Obama administration officials who were also a black cube target in connection with the Iran deal where they were trying to find um, uh, evidence of, of corruption there. Um, and, you know, in some ways, it also feels like this is not a terribly new phenomenon in the sense that it has it has elements of it that feel a little bit like James O'Keefe or Project Veritas, where. Um, you know, if if this guy was indeed um, mic'd up and had a camera and was just looking for some salacious material that's maybe taken out of context to, again, discredit uh, Citizen Lab. Uh, yeah, but I got to say, James O'Keefe had more of a flair about him. Uh, this poor guy, he's, he's apparently holding what everybody believes to have been a camera pen and constantly pointing it at his target in a way that you never would with a, a with a pen reading his questions off of cue cards no, you know no. O'Keefe was really in character yeah no I was going to say the, the difference is this is amateur hour um, you know the the Harvey Weinstein uh, black cube effort seemed a little bit more sophisticated than this as you said some of the the um, efforts by among others you know some conservative groups to to pin things on people um, are are a bit more sophisticated. This this guy was a little bit bumbling and and you know ended up stumbling out of the place and and knocking over some chairs as he left. Um, when oh, he I, I love the fact that that the AP has reporters there at the table because they've been tipped off. They jump up and start start asking him questions. He realizes he's blown. He he leaves and then he realizes he didn't pay for lunch. You know, I got to tell you. I wouldn't have come back. <laughs> I, I would have said on the way out, oh, those guys from AP will pick up the tab. Yeah. They, you know, Citizens Lab, to their credit, saw this coming a mile away. Um, and it makes it uh, all the more important for everybody in in this, these positions to be more vigilant about uh, suspicious investors who are reaching out to them out of the blue to, to throw money at their projects. So uh, be careful. Yes, I think, uh, you know, um, if you think just that just because they're polite and, and nice, the Canadians don't know how to play hardball, you have never played hockey with them. <laughs> right. Okay, uh, so another weird kind of uh, mix of tradecraft uh, uh, failures and uh, 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 spying to discredit uh, is something that came up in a uh, Bob Mueller filing, uh, uh, and uh, um, I don't quite know what to make of this, but uh, maybe uh, uh, Megan, you you can give us enough background to evaluate this filing. It's a little weird. So basically, what happened was uh, Mueller turned over some documents to a Russian company that was indicted as part of the Internet Research Agency. Um, scandal and they were hacked or supposedly hacked and these documents were released and they were filled with fake documents to make it indistinguishable what was 
actually um, a real document or not, and with the goal of discrediting the Mueller investigation. So in some ways, it plays along with a lot of the, it's the other... same old story, It's right? the Here same old are, story. Disinformation yada, yada. campaigns in every way. But, I mean, it's interesting that they're trying it wasn't, to... Just... It wasn't, there's some doubt that it was a hack at all, right? I yeah. mean, the Russians... I, for all the naming and shaming we've done, it seems yeah. like they're proud of their hacking prowess. Yeah. And they're pretending to have hacked documents that they probably got in a leak because from the, uh, one of the defendant in this the, case. Yeah, the hacker hashtag or the hacker disappeared already. And uh, my guess is this is a strategic leak and a disinformation campaign that looks just like all the other disinformation campaigns. They have some some truth in it and then some fake stuff to discredit the U.S. Do we know what the fake stuff was? I, I, I know it, there it's, was a it's, representative. So they, they had a list to make it seem indistinguishable. So I think we more or less have to trust that some of these documents are fake, but I do not believe that we know what was real and what was quote unquote junk material. So. All right. Well, I, I, you know, I have to say it's, it, 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 it reminds me of nothing so, so much as that uh, Russian robot that had, had a guy inside, right? Oh, yeah. uh, it, it's like, well, we are great hackers. Yes. Uh, you know, when, 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 Mueller turns over documents to us. Yes. And we can release them. We can them. get them. And it's, oh, it's hackers. That's it. Yes. Yes. Uh, we are excellent uh, at our terrible jobs. <laughs> okay. So uh, this, I guess, is annals in BS. I uh, because uh, from Russian BS to what I think of as Google BS. Um, uh, uh, Google has announced that they're basically doing the same kind of law enforcement lockout techniques that uh, Apple has been pioneering, um, and then claiming that the impact on law enforcement is just an unintended side effect. They're really trying to protect uh, users from um, uh, bad guys of other sorts, uh, insider attacks from Google. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, you're probably more sympathetic to Google than I am, but, uh, but what was this flap about? Well, it's an update to Android that prevents... Um prevents Google or the operator that's running Android from allowing access to an individual phone without breaking the whole system, which is what iOS is set up to do now. Uh, I think whether you regard it as an unintended side effect depends how much you balance the the risk of insider and, and similar attacks against, you know, against uh, privacy from law enforcement. It, it definitely has both effects. Well, um, yeah, yes, it, yes, and no. But if if I remember what this does is it says um, we will not essentially that we cannot update your phone unless you enter your PIN number or your biometrics. Uh, it, uh, so the the um, updates show up and wait for you to log to to activate your phone. Uh, so when is this a, a security feature? It's a security feature. If you stop updating your phone, entering your uh, PIN number, well, when would, does that happen? It happens if your phone is stolen or if you're arrested and law enforcement gets access to it. Uh, the idea that there's going to be an insider attack from Google in which they have bands of people going out and stealing phones and then using their inside information to give them access to the phone for what purpose? I, it makes no sense to me. This, 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 uh, unless they're paying their 
engineers a whole lot less than I think they are. Uh, uh, the, the, the risk of that kind of attack is tiny compared to the possibility that uh, uh, the contents of a phone will be needed for law enforcement purposes. Yeah, I, I mean, I may not have a full technical understanding. I thought it was a broader um, uh, a bit limitation on the ability to install malicious applications by Google or, or Apple or, or the operator, but, but you may be right. So, you know, uh, I'm sure there's somebody from Google listening to this. They can they can uh, uh, send corrections to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, I promise to uh, to read them uh, or bring you on the show and you can argue with me. But uh, uh, claiming this is an unintended side effect is is uh, as much BS as the Russians claiming that they hacked Bob Mueller's uh, uh, server. Uh, all right. Something a little more real, but maybe only a little more real. Uh, uh, Apple had a FaceTime flaw that everybody heard about for about 24 hours, uh, uh, mainly because a 14-year-old uh, a boy found it and couldn't uh, find anybody at Apple who would respond to his effort to uh, um, explain the flaw. Yeah, I, I don't see this one as such a big deal. I mean, Apple shut it down pretty quickly by turning off group, group FaceTime once it came to broad attention. And uh, it's a little bit hard to see how it could have been broadly exploited because you had to actually call the person who you would be listening in on. So maybe, you know, and, you and the fact that you were calling is recorded on the phone. So, yes, uh, uh, you got 20 minutes, 20 seconds of commentary. And I suppose if you're the kind of person who picks up a phone and says, oh, that jacket is calling me again, then you would be at risk. Yeah, I mean, if somebody has their phone in their pocket and not on uh, vibrate, then maybe you can do the unintentional pocket call. But that's not a major attack. So I see this as not such a big deal. Yeah, we've all gotten those uh, those calls. And in some cases, they've gone to voicemail. And uh, I doubt any of us has ever listened all the way to the end of one of those because it consists mainly of um, so yeah, it's it, it it's not a serious privacy uh, problem, which of course is why New York State is uh, investigating it. Uh, let me ask you about uh, something I thought was more interesting and maybe spurred by the fact that Apple was taking on bad publicity for about twenty four hours, because very shortly thereafter, if I remember right, uh, they announced that they were cutting off Facebook and then Google for what they characterized, uh, or at least they allowed the press to characterize as a big privacy um, violation of Apple's terms of service. Yeah, I think this one is a big deal. So Apple had granted um, Google and Facebook uh, enterprise certificates that allowed apps to be installed on iPhones outside of the App Store, so outside of Apple's whole app review process. And that was supposed to be used for enterprise apps. Apparently, Facebook was using it broadly for internal apps. And both Facebook and Google used it for research apps, which used uh, with consumers uh, gathering a whole lot of private information. Facebook and Google maintain with appropriate disclosure. In Facebook's case, it involved information that um, would have been encrypted on the phone. Apple was very unhappy about this. It was a clear violation of the terms of service for this enterprise certificate for which Google apologized. Can I can I can I can I can I push back a little on that because I the purpose of the certs that Apple was using was to uh, allow Apple to have much broader access than it would ordinarily have to uh, um, Apple uh, uh, activity for its employees 
And of course, it's contractors. It, 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 it has contractors working alongside its full employees, and I'm sure they're covered. Uh, and and the people who were doing this were getting paid now not a lot twenty dollars uh, a month or something, uh, but they were enrolled in a program as testers under a contract with disclosure. I, I got to say, they sold their data to Facebook a whole lot uh, uh, higher price than I sell mine. Uh, and and I, I wonder whether that's really a serious privacy issue. You kind of have to say, oh, yeah, but they couldn't possibly have known what they were doing. So they're idiots and uh, uh, they, they, they got uh, paid too little. Uh, um, and to say it's a violation of the terms of service means that uh, Apple says, yeah, if you're only paying them 20 bucks a month, that's not uh, an internal use. If you were paying them four thousand dollars a month, it would be internal use. I, I don't know. It seems it sounds to me like it was a clear violation of the terms of service. I mean, I think the response that these people did agree to what they were doing maybe answers some of the privacy issues. Although you know we've worried about that in other contexts like Cambridge Analytica, but um, I don't think it answers. I think it was clear that this was intended for use in, in enterprises, not for this use. I don't think Google would have apologized if it wasn't a clear violation, and their violation was not as broad as uh, Facebook's. And I, you know, Apple has definitely taken a stand for privacy, although it probably doesn't mind um, poking Facebook and Google in the eye. At the well, same especially time. if it detracts from the attention to the uh, FaceTime flaw that uh, it was uh, trending uh, until this one came along. So yeah, it's yeah, hard hard to know. Uh, it is pretty serious because you know using enterprise certs in uh, the computer world is an essential part of cybersecurity and uh, controlling your environment. Uh, um, and it's a little disconcerting to discover that uh, when you're talking about phones, you've got some third party with its own motivations that might say, oh, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to use uh, your uh, uh, enterprise cert for those purposes. Don't you just have to follow the terms of service? Yeah, well, that's as as I say. I thought it was more arguable than you do, uh, I, and I suspect that uh, uh, it was internally lawyered at Facebook, and they said, "Yeah, I can justify that." And maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. Uh, I think having Apple say we decide what is a term a violation of our terms of service and if you don't like that how would you like not to be able to communicate with any of the other employees at facebook we're going to cut off all of those uh, capabilities uh, until you apologize to us which is kind of what happened here you couldn't you couldn't get a lot of uh, uh, access to other apps that had clearly been designed for internal use um because they uh they took back the uh, cert without a lot of warning, as far as I can tell. So I, oh. look, I, I'm not, I'm not here to carry water for Facebook, but uh, uh, this it does feel like there might be a reality distortion field at work here. Yeah, well, it, it certainly was an overbroad response. So here's news that kind of stunned me: the the repeal of net neutrality might be in judicial trouble. It uh, was appealed. There was a five-hour argument at the D.C. Circuit. Uh, one of my partners was involved in it, uh, uh, arguing that uh, uh, the rule that the FCC put in effect, uh, uh, basically doing away with the net neutrality doctrine, uh, uh, should not stand. Uh, and at least two of the three judges seem to have been leaning that way, which surprised me. Yeah, I, I mean, I 
I'm a little bit surprised by this, too. You would think that this was something within FCC discretion. And the argument by most of the competitive in the, uh, Internet industry was they exceeded their discretion by characterizing um, inter ISP services as an information service, basically a content service, rather than a telecommunication service, which is subject to greater restrictions. And they drew a panel that has um, two Obama appointees. Of course, these were Obama FCC era uh, rules and the panel seems to have been pretty sympathetic to it. So, you know, it, it's a bit political. Uh, this, yeah, surprisingly, it, it, it I, often are. Yeah, uh, well, I, I I did hear the FCC general counsel might have been a little overconfident, uh, as, as I probably would have been thinking about this. I said, well, you know, if we have the authority to impose these rules, you'd think we'd have the authority to get rid of them. But they apparently wanted a big win and based their uh, arguments on. Um, some broad principles that would give uh, the FCC a lot of discretion in the future. Uh, and uh, um, the, at least two of the three judges had some real problems with it. Uh, so it'll be a divided opinion, it sounds like. Uh, but uh, uh, it's quite possible that this is going to get remanded. Yeah, although I think there's a, it would then be um, appealed to the Supreme Court. And I think there's a decent chance that uh, cert would be granted, and I think this Supreme Court would be pretty likely to defer to the administrative, you know, administrative discretion. So we could be watching this for a while. Yeah, I, I have to say the the, the relationship of the, between the FCC and the DC Circuit pretty much defines familiarity breeding contempt. Uh, uh, so I, if it got to a different uh, uh, jurisdiction there probably would be a little more deference paid to what the FCC has done. All right. Um, well, uh, we we need to move on, but I wanted to uh, uh, touch on two or three uh, stories. Uh, Nate, uh, the Pentagon is supposedly uh, falling behind to, get to cyber threats. Uh, that doesn't strike me as news. No, it really doesn't, does it? Um, apparently, this is tied to a report that may come out as early as this week. Um, the conclusions aren't that surprising, I guess, um, for people who follow this stuff closely. That the you know the the diversification and magnitude of, of the threats are outpacing our our ability to defend ourselves. I think the the critical question is going to be you know as as the evidence mounts that this is the case. What uh, is the straw that breaks the camel's back and forces policymakers to actually do something about that? And what exactly are they going to do? I'm not sure this will will um, serve as that final straw, but um, but it is uh, uh, an important voice in the conversation. And, and we'll see what uh, the specifics of this report say when it comes out. Okay, well, and this week in Dogs Biting Men, we've got another story. Uh, the Ukraine says that Russia is trying to disrupt its election. This is a surprise. Shocking. That is the entire story. We are all shocked. Yes. We'll I, just sit here in shock. Is. Yeah. I, 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 okay. Uh, I, I, there is something new in, uh, coming from Japan. Japan has said, probably driven by the 2020 uh, uh, games, that uh, they're worried about DDoS attacks uh, from Japanese uh, compromised IoT devices and they're going to go and do what the hackers do, which is to try to log on to hacker uh, onto these devices using uh, default credentials or maybe 
a list of uh, everybody's uh, most common passwords, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and monkey one, two, three. Uh, and uh, if they get in, they're then going to tell the owners of those devices to fix their uh, security. Yeah. Um, there's a, a little bit of uh, flap from the usual uh, left-lib sources saying, oh my god, Japan's going to hack their citizens. But this strikes me as, as perfectly appropriate. The question is whether they've really gone far enough because um, most people don't know how to fix their uh, devices. Uh, and if Japan's going to log on to those devices, they, they might as well uh, fix them too. Um, but uh, that they apparently are not ready to do. Okay, uh, and last, um, uh, Epic filed a, uh, uh, and a few other uh, uh, NGOs filed a uh, document at the FTC saying, we know that you're looking at uh, Facebook for violating its uh, consent decree, uh, and we think they should pay $2 billion and be completely restructured and broken up, uh, uh, among other reasons, because of the algorithmic bias of the news feed that reflects predominantly Anglo male worldview. I, I have to say this this really feeds my prejudice about privacy law, which is that anybody can be found guilty, and the only people who are found guilty are people who, whose time it is in the barrel uh, because uh, they're being Twitter mobbed for everything. Anyways, this is just a kind of legal Twitter mobbing. Uh, and uh, uh, to say we'd like you to apply, you know, uh, massive penalties for privacy violations against this company because they of their Anglo-male worldview uh, um, is just an illustration of how bankrupt privacy law is today. Uh, not to mention, if, if you asked for a list of the 20 things that are problems at Facebook, I don't think that uh, uh, being uh, too far to the right uh, would be on that list. Let's turn to our interview with Chris Bing and Joel Sheckman. I, um, I, welcome, guys. Uh, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a fascinating story. This is the story of... Uh, it was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. You, 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 why don't you guys tell me the story as you wrote it up? About four and a half months ago, Joel and I had been hearing rumors about Americans coming back from the UAE with pretty disturbing stories about the work that they'd done in that country. And the majority of these Americans were former U.S. intelligence officials who had been hired to essentially do the same job they'd been doing in the U.S., but for the monarchy and to be working with UAE intelligence. And it was through these stories that we learned more about the structure, the companies involved what these former NSA officials were exactly doing. And that's what you see in the story that came out last week, where we revealed this thing called Project Raven, which was a program to work with UAE's NSA, which at the time was called NISA, and to help them launch and create sophisticated hacking operations against a really wide range of targets from rival foreign leaders to dissidents to human rights activists to journalists, and then eventually, as, as we describe, Americans as well. So you had this ultimate terrible situation where Americans were involved in hacking operations against other Americans. Yeah, so it's a, it was a real slippery slope I, uh, because, of course, when we have allies who are fighting terrorism, we want them to be good at finding terrorists. And so it would have made a lot of sense for the U.S. government to say to the UAE, well, you can afford to buy your own capability and we will help you find people and, and provide export licenses so people can provide these services. So must have started with 
U.S. company doing the same thing they'd been doing for the U.S. government and in an allied cause. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's clear, you know, for reading like the early documents of how this arrangement was created, uh, and for for the Emiratis, actually, it wasn't called Project Raven; it was called Project Dread. Just to give you like a kind of uh, <laughs> like very, Judge very, Dread is that? The yeah, <laughs> no, and, and they made this like kind of complicated acronym, but yeah. in the end, they just wanted it to be Dread and an Austin Powers esque flourish. Right, right. Um, but you know, the creation of Dread, it was very much like that. It was like you know, they they. They had no capability. They had no cyber offensive capabilities in the UAE at all, and um, there was this idea that they had to buy them from outside, and that in like five or ten years, you know, of working with these like, you know, top-notch elite American NSA folks, that they would, you know, that they'd be able to catch up. And the idea in the beginning was really that it was going to be focused on counterterrorism, but you know, like anything else, I mean. You know, once 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 they were on the ground, then you know the national concerns kind of took over, and 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 in the UAE, you know, while terrorism might pose, um, you know, a greater like kind of immediate threat, like the, the mentality there, from what I could tell, was that um, the biggest threat to the government, the biggest threat to the status quo, was some was something more along the lines of like an Arab Spring you know, like protest kind sure. of situation. So it, when did this get started? Did, did, was it getting started right around the Arab Spring? So we can trace it back to 2009, 2010. Okay. Um, our so, story is really focused on 2014 and onward, which is when we have an on-the-record uh, source in the story, which I'm sure we'll get to, and it tells the story sort of through her lens. And then on, on your question around how this was exactly organized under the U.S. government, we were able to review uh, export licenses right. that were given through the State Department to this to an American firm called CyberPoint, which is sort of the catalyst for a lot of the, the, this program. Who had hired a number of these former NSA individuals and then brought them over. Well, and that's that's clearly what CyberPoint should have done. Mm -hmm. This is uh, mm -hmm. uh, um, this is governed by the ITAR mainly because it would be considered intelligence. It's a defense it's, service. Yeah, it's a defense service and, yeah. and intelligence is covered by defense services. So uh, you have to get a very specific license from uh, the State Department. Usually you get it from Commerce for a lot of this stuff. Um, eh, and they would have asked, well, what's our general diplomatic view of the UAE? How much do we trust them, et cetera? And if they licensed it with conditions uh, and CyberPoint accepted those conditions and lived by them, nothing wrong yet, right? Well, I think there's a few parts to this, right? While the state of, while you can say that there had been significant oversight in just the approval process for the license at first, and we had spoken to a spokesperson who said that human rights concerns obviously play into whether someone gets one of these approvals. Right. The question is oversight over time. As Joel mentioned, when they once they got on the ground Perhaps the mission at first was counterterrorism, but it quickly morphed into all of these other things, whatever the client deemed a top yeah, concern. Yeah, specifically after like 2011, after the Arab Spring really started to take off, there was like a really great fear in the UAE that anybody who was uh, you know, talking smack about the monarchy in any way, you know, might be the... The next person who's like leading demonstrators in the in the street, and you know, and, and they did it. They did some kids. I mean, they, yeah, they, they, it was they, like kids, like human rights uh, activists, journalists, dissidents. Like, and it really took like very little to get on that list. Uh, from what we could tell, it was like, you know, if you said something bad about them and they happened to see it, then you got on the list, and then you didn't really like come off the list. Yeah. You know? um, so there was this journalist, this UK journalist, yeah, Rory uh, Rory Donafi. Yeah. It's kind of a fascinating little story because this guy, 
he was kind of just like a 25 year old, like any other 25 year old. He got out of college. He wanted to get into human rights. He starts like this WordPress blog in London and he calls it like, I don't know, the Emirati Center for Human Rights. But it was just it was a blog he had in London. And there was not like that many people who write about human rights in the UAE. So like, you know, he would be like high up on the Google search results. <laughs> and for that reason, the Emiratis took him like deadly seriously. And it wasn't just um, and I had never heard about this guy until the operatives told me that he had become this like focus of their attention and he was like yeah he was like shocked you know he's like i just had it was basically just a blog you know and and they and he just became this like source of obsession for them i mean he was described by some people as being like the crown jewel of their uh of their surveillance efforts was this like 25 year old kid that's fascinating so didn't i i i saw if i remember right over the weekend a separate story on the fight over whether cutter should be allowed to host the world cup and apparently there was an allegation that he was paid to write a hostile human rights report on Qatar, maybe by the UAE. Um, uh, Donafi was, was. Yes. Oh, I, I, this I missed. This okay. is this I, is an interesting I, development. That, that, it, double check my facts. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, that, I, uh, that's, that's fascinating. I always say uh, I, yeah. I I don't want to be on the record until I know whether I'm uh, uh, right. But uh, yeah, no, it, that's fascinating. Uh, it, well, now that he's a big shot, right, uh, in the world of human rights and the Gulf. Yeah, he's a uh, major, major target. And he's found he's found a way to uh, uh, have a second act. Uh, so yeah, so they're out starting to do now. Targets chosen by the Emiratis as yeah. opposed to uh, uh, purely terrorists. Uh, um, is your sense that uh, the U.S. government doesn't know about that? Because yeah, my sense is that they that they didn't know, and that they, and to be honest, that they didn't really care to know, um, because you know it's clear from reading the license agreements at the beginning that that the activities they're going to be doing is some kind of surveillance related activity, and 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 it doesn't take like somebody who's like a real expert in the region to know that at times where that's going to veer off into. And I think that, you know, I, I, I don't think that they tried very hard to to keep their finger on that pulse. I mean, that, that is the, the perception that, that, that I've walked away with, that, um, that, you know, they just really weren't trying to keep up with this program. They were, you know, they, they made it very clear that you weren't supposed to be targeting Americans in the right. licenses. But beyond that, like, whether you go after a 16-year-old on Twitter or, like, this British guy, like, that, like they didn't necessarily want to know and about all that. And you can understand. They, they, they're, they're in the business of saying, yes, you can have hand grenades. You can have rifles. Right. You can have anti-aircraft yeah. guns. And you can't really say, uh, but you can't use it to uh, shoot a uh, demonstrator in, in the street because what are you going to do? You can't take it back. Or if you do, you'll never sell another weapon. I think you have to make a little bit of a distinction here because, yeah, it's an ITAR license, which also applies to anti-aircraft missiles and so forth. But like here, you're actually talking about human personnel that are going in there, and you very much can tell pers- human personnel what the ground rules are. Like they could have said, you know, you, the extent of this license is to be used against counterterrorism, but not against human rights targets. I, I know that that's a very murky line, but but right. but you know. And, and and let's introduce the woman that you uh, uh, talked to, who's yeah. willing to be named, uh, yeah, Lori. The brave soul. Yeah, that is that is brave. But she's hiding out, though, isn't she? She's she's in an undisclosed she's location. In an undisclosed location. I mean that. Uh, I don't know, hiding. I mean, we we didn't, she didn't want us to like name it in like the newspaper, but okay. I, you know, I don't know, hiding. But <laughs> so she shows up. She she. 
goes through this uh, 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 indoctrination into the program, and it says, don't target Americans. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and so she looks at them targeting reporters and the kids who criticize the regime and essentially says, I guess that's okay. Yeah, yeah. How she squared it was that some of these operations, they didn't feel good. They didn't. She she felt perhaps a little bit guilty about them, but she ultimately accepted and uh, proceeded with them anyways because she said this is a different country. They have different national security priorities. We're here as as essentially their guest and their client, and and we'll follow them. Um, the as, long as, as long as we're not doing something that violates U.S. law or the license, uh, I. Yeah, they're she's paying. Used to, she's also used to being like an operator, you know, an operative, right. and and you know, at the NSA that she understood there were certain ground rules, but within that, she kind of targeted the people that she was told to target there too. You know, it wasn't really her job to kind of morally vet it. She mm-hmm. felt like, and, and and she didn't feel like it was her job when she got there either. And meanwhile, there are increasingly there are these locked rooms that are just Emiratis go into to right. talk about stuff. So, right. so the program develops over time. That's right. While uh, a U.S. firm, CyberPoint, which you mentioned earlier, was a big part of this program originally, at, at a certain point, the Emiratis felt more comfortable with migrating the program to a, a domestic company called Dark Matter, which is based in the UAE. And it's around this time- what, Black Cube was taken? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all these names are, are quite similar. Um and it's during this transition period that the American managers, essentially the architects of Raven and, and the early architects of the UAE's cyber programs, felt like they were losing grasp. They were losing the same control that they had on the program in its direction. And this is when they f- began to see things like Emirati eyes only lists. So targeting lists, assignments, mm-hmm. specific missions that they could not view, they could not access in the backend software programs that they had. And this only further uh, concerned operatives like Lori, who had come from the U.S., whose red line was targeting Americans. So CyberPoint at this point is out of the picture? Are they basically – are they supporting dark matter? No, they're gone. They're gone at that point. And and, and around the same time, they're also starting to see – like more evidence of like what's being described as incidental collection. Ah, there's a there's a plus one number here. Why, why is that in here? Oh, plus uh, one meaning as in one two o two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why why is there an American country code in here? Uh, this guy he seems like he's probably American. Why why are we? Why is he in the targeting list? And it would be to explain. Okay, no, no, that was that was incidental collection. That was accidental. We're gonna purge that from the system. Don't worry, guys. And then they would see the same name again, like three months later, and be like, Ah, I thought we. Uh, put this guy on a list to not target and we purged him. Oh, no, it was just a mistake again. Don't worry, don't worry. And, and, and around the time, that you, they're starting to see it like kind of more and more. And, you know, and, and she's getting worried and other people are getting starting to get worried in the program too. And the reassurances that they're getting from Dark Matter were not the same type of reassurances that they would get from CyberPoint. Like Dark Matter is like, well, no, you know, we're it's not going to happen. You don't have to worry too much about it. And if it happens, it's it's not going to be you who's doing it, you know? Yeah. And one caveat just to add there is that the majority of of Dark Matter didn't know about this program. While it was organized under them and the paychecks came through the the company, the work was still directly with Emirati Intelligence. They weren't interfacing, for example, with with Dark Matter personnel every day or executives. It was a contracting vehicle. The nature of the program itself didn't change. They were still sitting right next to Emirati Intelligence every day. So at one level, obviously, there's a hydraulic pressure to turn this into a 
fully Emirati prioritized uh, uh, program. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you kind of say, well, geez, what did any everybody expect? What did the State <laughs> Department expect? What did CyberPoint expect? What did Lori Stroud expect? Uh, they're paying for it. They they know what they want. Uh, uh, and if you give them the capability, they're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, this all kind of reeks a little bit of, of American foreign policy over the last 20 years, whether it's arming quasi-allies, soft allies in the region, and then the negative consequences of that. You know, Perhaps in the past, historically, it was providing RPGs to uh, an opposition group of a government that we didn't like, and then ultimately coming back to bite us. Here, it's, it's the cyber element. We've now, we, speaking as U.S. as a country, but specifically the government, allow these licenses to go through, help develop this capability to a country that's helping in the, in the fight against terror, but perhaps doesn't have the same values or laws as the United States. And now this is this is the consequence. These are the side effects. Well, so it's not just um, a targeting of Americans. Uh, there's like a whole fad for dox, hacking and doxing the rulers of other countries in yeah. uh, the uh, the Gulf. Uh, yeah. You know, Qatar and UAE are... are Cheerfully doxing each other and uh, uh, and the Americans who are under contract to them. Yeah, and 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 it's, I mean, it was quite a thing to hear some of these tales stuff that they would you know like discover on you know the iPhones of like these various government leaders in the region. Um, well, you, you you discovered that they they were in the Emirs. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. The, uh, own phone, right? Yeah, yeah. They were in his. They were. It was like twenty or thirty of like the highest ranking people in Turkey and. You know, I mean, it was, um, you know, it was all over the region, both sides of the Yemen war, you know. Well, one thing you can say is that they effectively built this capability very quickly. Uh, and that's what we saw. Criticism aside, they were successful in building this very, very quickly. And they can thank Americans and the American government for doing that. Yeah. And uh, and the Americans who are on the receiving end of dox attacks from <laughs> one side or the other, yeah. uh May or may not have been doxed by tools that were developed by uh, uh, CyberPoint, uh, uh, but there's a fifty-fifty chance, right? Depending on <laughs> right. which government this doxed you. Yeah, it's 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 hard to see where all the lines are, but you know th this was a surprising story for us. But at the same time, we we talked to experts, and it almost feels less surprising. Yeah, I I, I guess I, there's nothing about this that is to me surprising except See, that it's public it's, it's funny it's funny it's funny you say that because i found it so surprising in the beginning when i found out that nsa people like they leave they walk out the door of the nsa and like within two weeks they're doing the same spy stuff that they did for nsa but they're working as like a mercenary for another government like for me like i i thought that would like totally be illegal and it's but it's not for me, that was the biggest shock of the story, was so the, that that was something that was totally like a known thing within the industry. The Gulf is a special world in that regard because <laughs> right. they, they they can't develop the domestic capability to, to uh, manufacture and use all these weapon systems. So U.S. contractors are selling them all kinds of weapon systems and capabilities. Mm. And by and large, the, uh, the State Department says yes to that uh, because they want to maintain influence. Uh, this is just one more weapon system after a fashion. It's just a weapon system that uh, is a little more likely to... The human weapon system. Yeah. And intelligence capability. Uh, um, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Well, I, you know, well, what about the thing of the thing of these of these operatives though, like taking these you know, these techniques that they've learned, 
uh, you know, real specific things on how you know on how you go about right. casing out these systems and then taking it and using that spycraft for another country. And for you, does you think that that's so? The, one, the question always is, um, what's the alternative? Mm. In, in this case, yeah. uh, I am quite confident that the Chinese have systems that they could sell that are even more effective uh, in some ways. Uh. Uh, and so you always have to ask. You know, am I am I standing on principle that will just uh, have no impact? Uh, uh, yeah. So I I I, I see this, the the uh, I should say the Obama State Department's problem here. They were stuck uh, and they yeah. made they made the decision they made, and I'm not sure they were wrong. Uh, uh, and they certainly didn't make it for you know the reasons that uh, people would criticize Trump for. Uh, I think they just thought this is the best we can do. These guys are going to develop this capability and. We can shape it, and we should. We should sell it to them and try to shape it. And uh, uh, at some point, we're going to lose control of it, just as they lost control of all the special forces troops that they trained at mm. uh, UAE. Um, it's uh, uh, maybe we it's can stop the thing. worst abuses if yeah, we're that's there. The, or I think that's like the that. theory. Yeah, but I, I want to come back to Lori Stroud because yeah. uh, yeah, she, she she left uh, NSA to take this job, but. Uh, and she left for a reason that makes her the zelig of uh, <laughs> cyber uh, espionage. Yeah. She's the woman who said, we need to hire this guy in Hawaii, yeah. Edward Snowden. He's perfect He's for the perfect. job. Yeah. It, it took her two months to, from the time she said, hire this guy. To the time yeah, she basically he... was told, uh, "Hey, wasn't that you who wanted us to hire?" <laughs> yeah, it's it's another component of this story, as if it needed to be any more wild. Uh, Lori was we one of the first people at Booz Allen working in in NSA Hawaii to um, to suggest hiring Edward Snowden, and it was her recommendation that was helpful ultimately in him being hired. <sighs> Through this, he gained access to other systems, more classified information. And Actually, he has said that I went to Booz Allen so that I could get access to more yeah. stuff. Yeah, that's, that's public she, record. She likes to joke that uh, she didn't get her referral bonus because he was there for less than three months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that would be uh, one reason. That would be yeah, an overdetermined yeah. uh, result. Yeah. Uh, so what does she think of Snowden now? I think she doesn't view him well. I think at the heart, and you can see this throughout the story, Lori, more than anything, feels that she's an NSA analyst, that she loves the intelligence community that she believed the counterterrorism mission. loves the culture of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and she felt it was important. And with Snowden, it was um, particularly disappointing and hard to deal with because she felt like something she had loved, she was involved in, in hurting really, really badly. Um, no other insights into his character. She she probably didn't know him that well. No. I, she said it, he was a very quiet guy. Yeah, I, I don't think there was necessarily great knowledge of of Snowden from her perspective. So the last last topic I just want to cover is um, this is coming to light in part because there's an FBI investigation and it has been for a while uh, as the rumors that, that Americans were getting done by Project Raven um, started to circulating, the FBI decided to open an investigation because, of course, that is a crime. Uh, 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 what's the status of the investigation? So we know as early as 2016, the FBI was investigating this program and the effects of it. And they, um, two FBI agents approached Lori at Dulles Airport when she was actually heading back to the UAE after some time home, asking her questions about the program. And, and we've spoken with a number of other sources who've described their interactions with law enforcement 
largely since 2016, which is, as you know, the time when, when Dark Matter came in and Cyberpoint was, was falling out, and their concerns are, are, are in two part. The first being, as you mentioned, hacking of, of U.S. persons and U.S. companies. And the second is more of a counterintelligence concern around the fact that you had so many cleared individuals, former U.S. intelligence operatives, Who working in this environment. What seemed to them insignificant bits about yeah. uh, their uh, uh, past ex- uh, uh, exploits, but if you have so many and that's somebody's exactly smart right. on the other side, uh, you're going to yeah, end exactly. up with a data spill. Yeah, yeah exactly. An aggregate. Yeah. 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 So it's one of these things where um, it's the type of investigation where it's not clear if charges are going to come to light. Perhaps it's only focused on the on the counter intel side of it. But as recently there as this for year, sure, is plenty of uh, opportunity to bring criminal uh, uh, cases. They could bring criminal cases against uh, dark matter. I, I assume if, if dark matter hacked phones in the United States, that's uh, right. And everybody in management, plus everybody who was witting, there's an argument that you're all part of the conspiracy. Uh, you don't have to know everything about the conspiracy to to be part of it. Uh, um, so all the American uh, uh, contractors have at least some exposure. Yeah, that's right. It's going to be really interesting to see where the case goes. And this is where I'll drop. If, if anyone is familiar with the case and would like to reach out to us, we're still investigating it. We're still investigating Project Raven and everything around it. And um, it's it's a fascinating case for all the reasons that we described today. It's one where the government was complicit to a certain degree in allowing this to happen in the UAE. It got out of hand, and now U.S. law enforcement is cleaning up what was left behind. Oh, Beatrice. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, Chris Bing, Joel Sheckman, that was a terrific article, uh, a couple of articles. Uh, let me ask you one more question uh, completely unrelated to that story, but how come good national security reporters are getting laid off these days? <laughs> it's, it's a hard question. I mean, I know, I'm sure Joel and I each have our own opinions on this, but I think for a long time, the model for media has remained kind of stagnant and hasn't changed a lot. And news organizations have not found new ways to create revenue. And it's a failure of media executives at the, at the very top for this. And as a result, there's been cuts. We've seen a ton of cuts across the industry in recent weeks, whether it's BuzzFeed, McClatchy. I think but national security, in terms of national security specifically. And it, and it, and it, affects, yeah. it affects that space too. But the other the other reason is that it's really, really hard. And I'm, I'm sure you have your thoughts on this. No, well. no. It's just in terms of like why them. But that's 100% true. But like why national security reporters specifically. And I think like at a lot of organizations, those end up being some of the most seasoned and, and well-paid people. Yeah. So I think I, I, I suspect. So that, like that when you're trying were, to cut, it's like. Yeah. They, you know, they come yes, first. And, yeah. and people had thought that's a niche where we can yeah. excel and people will pay for the content because it's unique. Uh, uh, these guys have contacts that nobody else has. And so uh, we'll build our brand around national security reporting. And it turns out um, that uh, that isn't enough to sustain a brand. It's a real shame. Yes. It is a shame. But I, I will leave this optimistic note at the end. There are you know, new classes of reporters that are, that are growing up in this industry right now who are, who are quite good in national security and, and counterintelligence uh, style reporting investigations. And so I'm hopeful for the future of, of reporting on this beat. Uh, given uh, that you're, you've probably got 40 more years in this. Oh, you better be. I've got to be hopeful. Okay, Chris Bing, Joel Sheckman, uh, terrific to talk to you. Thanks again to Phil Kinda, Maury Shank, Nate Jones, and Dr. Megan Reese for joining me. This has been episode 249 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, 
Joel, Chris, I'm going to give you uh, our highly coveted uh, Cyberlaw Podcast mugs. Uh, oh, nice. So uh, you can take those away. Uh, and anybody else who sends us suggestions that, uh, for people we should interview uh, uh, who actually end up on the show will also get mugs. Uh, so I, uh, since I nominated you, I've got enough mugs. Uh, okay. uh, but uh, others should uh, uh, be inspired. Uh, I, I occasionally uh, tweet uh, my reaction to stories that are going to come up on the podcast so if you want to follow me on at Stuart Baker on Twitter you might see some of the stories and I'm always happy to get comments there uh, on whether my take is accurate uh, uh, you can also send uh, uh, suggestions for people who should be here uh, on the program to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, rate the show please rate the show we, uh, we need as many reviews as we can possibly get on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play and uh, all of the other uh, podcast aggregators. Uh, um, and I promise if they are particularly entertaining reviews, I will read them on the air. Uh, show credits, uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are the producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Beavers, our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, host and provocateur. Please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 